Section thirty three of the Life of Samuel Johnson, Volume four. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Life of Samuel Johnson, Volume four, by James Boswell, Section thirty three. On Thursday, June the third, the Oxford post coach took us up in the morning at Bolt Court. The other two passengers were Mrs. Beresford and her daughter, two very agreeable ladies from America. They were going to Worcestershire, where they then resided. Frank had been sent by his master the day before to take places for us, and I found from the waybill that Dr. Johnson had made our names be put down. Mrs. Beresford, who had read it, whispered me, Is this the great dr johnson i told her it was so she was then prepared to listen as soon as she happened to mention in a voice so low that johnson did not hear it that her husband had been a member of the american congress i cautioned her to beware of introducing that subject as she must know how very violent johnson was against the people of that country he talked a great deal, but I am sorry I have preserved little of the conversation. Miss Beresford was so much charmed that she said to me aside, How he does talk! Every sentence is an essay. She amused herself in the coach with knotting. He would scarcely allow this species of employment any merit. Next to mere idleness, said he i think notting is to be reckoned in the scale of insignificance though i once attempted to learn notting dempster's sister looking to me endeavoured to teach me it but i made no progress i was surprised at his talking without reserve in the public postcoach of the state of his affairs i have said he about the world i think above a thousand pounds which I intend shall afford Frank an annuity of seventy pounds a year. Indeed, his openness with people at a first interview was remarkable. He said once to Mr. Langton, I think I am like Squire Richard in The Journey to London. I am never strange in a strange place. Note. Lady Wronghead whispers, Mrs. Motherly, pointing to Matilda, Mrs. Motherly, only a niece of mine, madam, that lives with me. She will be proud to give your ladyship any assistance in her power. Lady Wronghead. A pretty sort of young woman. Jenny, you two must be acquainted. Jenny. Oh, mamma, I am never strange in a strange place. Salutes, Matilda. The provoked husband, or a journey to London. Act two, scene one, by Vanborough and Collie Kibber. It was not therefore Squire Richard whom Johnson quoted, but his sister. End of footnote. He was truly social. He strongly censured what is much too common in England among persons of condition, maintaining an absolute silence when unknown to each other, as, for instance, when occasionally brought together in a room before the master or mistress of the house has appeared. 
sir that is being so uncivilized as not to understand the common rights of humanity at the inn where we stopped he was exceedingly dissatisfied with some roast mutton which we had for dinner the ladies i saw wondered to see the great philosopher whose wisdom and wit they had been admiring all the way get into ill humour from such a cause he scolded the waiter saying it is as bad as bad can be it is ill-fed ill-killed ill-kept and ill-dressed he bore the journey very well and seemed to feel himself elevated as he approached oxford that magnificent and venerable seat of learning orthodoxy and toryism frank came in the heavy coach in readiness to attend him and we were received with the most polite hospitality at the house of his old friend dr adams master of pembroke college who had given us a kind invitation before we were set down i communicated to johnson my having engaged to return to london directly for the reason i have mentioned and that i would hasten back to him again he was pleased that i had made this journey merely to keep him company he was easy and placid with dr adams mrs and miss adams and mrs kennicott widow of the learned hebraean who was here on a visit Footnote. She too was learned, for according to Hannah More she had learnt Hebrew merely to be useful to her husband. End of footnote. He soon dispatched the inquiries which were made about his illness and recovery by a short and distinct narrative, and then, assuming a gay air, repeated from Swift, Nor think on our approaching ills and talk of spectacles and pills dr newton the bishop of bristol having been mentioned johnson recollecting the manner in which he had been censured by that prelate thus retaliated tom knew he should be dead before what he has said of me would appear he durst not have printed it while he was alive Footnote. dr newton in his account of his own life after animadverting upon mr gibbon's history says dr johnson's lives of the poets afforded more amusement but candour was much hurt and offended at the malevolence that predominates in every part some passages it must be allowed are judicious and well written but make not sufficient compensation for so much spleen and ill-humour never was any biographer more sparing of his praise or more abundant in his censures he seemingly delights more in exposing blemishes than in recommending beauties slightly passes over excellencies enlarges upon imperfections and not content with his own severe reflections revives old scandal and produces large quotations from the forgotten works of former critics his reputation was so high in the republic of letters that it wanted not to be raised upon the ruins of others but these essays instead of raising a higher idea than was before entertained of his understanding have certainly given the world a worse opinion of his temper the bishop was therefore the more surprised and concerned for his townsman for he respected him not only for his genius and learning but valued him much more for the more amiable part of his character his 
humanity and charity, his morality and religion. The last sentence we may consider as the general and permanent opinion of Bishop Newton. The remarks which precede it must, by all who have read Johnson's admirable work, be imputed to the disgust and peevishness of old age. I wish they had not appeared, and that Dr. Johnson had not been provoked by them to express himself not in respectful terms of a prelate whose labours were certainly of considerable advantage both to literature and religion. Boswell. End of footnote. Dr. Adams. I believe his Dissertations on the Prophecies is his great work. Johnson. My sir, it is Tom's great work. But how far it is great, or how much of it is Tom's, are other questions. I fancy a considerable part of it was borrowed. Dr. Adams. He was a very successful man. Johnson. I don't think so. He did not get very high. He was late in getting what he did get, and he did not get it by the best means. I believe he was a gross flatterer. Footnote. Newton was born January the 1st, 1704, and was made bishop in 1761. In his account of his own life, he says, he was no great gainer by his preferment, for he was obliged to give up the prebend of Westminster, the presentership of York, the lectureship of St. George's Hanover Square, and the genteel office of sub-almoner. He died in 1781. His works were published in 1782. Gibbon, defending himself against an attack by Newton, says, The old man should not have indulged his zeal in a false and feeble charge against the historian who, etc. End of footnote. I fulfilled my intention by going to London, and returned to Oxford on Wednesday the 9th of June when I was happy to find myself again in the same agreeable circle at Pembroke College, with the comfortable prospect of making some stay. Johnson, welcome to my return, was more than ordinary glee. He talked with great regard of the Honourable Archibald Campbell, whose character he had given at the Duke of Argyle's table when we were at Inverary and at this time wrote out for me in his own hand a fuller account of that learned and venerable writer which i had published in its proper place johnson made a remark this evening which struck me a good deal i never said he knew a non-juror who could reason Footnote. the reverend mr arcator has favoured me with a note of a dialogue between mr john henderson and dr johnson on this topic as related by mr henderson and it is evidently so authentic that i shall here insert it henderson what do you think sir of william law johnson william law sir wrote the best piece of paranetic divinity but william law was no reasoner. Henderson. Jeremy Collier, sir? Johnson. Jeremy Collier fought without a rival, and therefore could not claim the victory. Mr. Henderson mentioned Ken and Kettlewell, but some objections were made. At last he said, But, sir, what do you think of Leslie? Johnson. 
Charles Leslie I had forgotten. Leslie was a reasoner, and a reasoner who was not to be reasoned against. Russell. For the effect of Law's paranetic divinity on Johnson, see Ante. I am surprised, writes Macaulay, that Johnson should have pronounced Law no reasoner. Law did indeed fall into great errors, but they were errors against which logic affords no security. In mere dialectical skill he had very few superiors. Jeremy Collier's attack on the playwriters Johnson describes in his Life of Congreve and continues, Nothing now remained for the poets but to resist or fly. Dryden's conscience or his prudence, angry as he was, withheld him from the conflict. Congreve and Vanbrugh attempted answers. Of Leslie, Lord Bolingbroke thus writes, let neither the polemical skill of Leslie nor the antique erudition of Bedford persuade us to put on again those old shackles of false law, false reason, and false gospel which were forged before the revolution and broken to pieces by it. End of footnote. Surely he did not mean to deny that faculty to many of their writers, to Hicks, Brett and other eminent divines of that persuasion, and did not recollect that the seven bishops, so justly celebrated for their magnanimous resistance of arbitrary power, were yet non-jurors to the new government. Footnote. Only five of the seven were non-jurors, and anybody but Boswell would have known that a man may resist arbitrary power and yet not be a good reasoner. Nay, the resistance which Sancroft and the other non-juring bishops offered to arbitrary power, while they continued to hold the doctrine of non-resistance, is the most decisive proof that they were incapable of reasoning. End of footnote. The non-juring clergy of Scotland, indeed, who, excepting a few, have lately, by a sudden stroke, cut off all ties of allegiance to the house of Stuart, and resolved to pray for our present lawful sovereign by name, may be thought to have confirmed this remark, as it may be said that the divine indefeasible hereditary right which they profess to believe, if ever true, must be equally true still. Many of my readers will be surprised when I mention that Johnson assured me that he had never in his life been in a non-during meeting-house. Next morning at breakfast he pointed out a passage in Savage's Wanderer, saying, These are fine verses. If, said he, I had written with hostility of Warburton in my Shakespeare, I should have quoted this couplet. Here learning blinded first and then beguiled looks dark as ignorance, as fancy wild. You see, they'd have fitted him to a T, smiling. Dr. Adams, but you did not write against Warburton. Johnson, no, sir. I treated him with great respect, both in my preface and in my notes. Mrs. Kennicott spoke of her brother, the Reverend Mr. Chamberlain, 
who had given up great prospects in the Church of England on his conversion to the Roman Catholic faith. Johnson, who warmly admired every man who acted from a conscientious regard to principle, erroneous or not, exclaimed fervently, God bless him. Mrs. Kennicott, in confirmation of Dr. Johnson's opinion that the present was not worse than former ages, mentioned that her brother assured her there was now less infidelity on the continent than there had been. Voltaire and Rousseau were less read. I asserted from good authority that Hume's infidelity was certainly less read. Johnson all infidel writers drop into oblivion when personal connections and the floridness of novelty are gone so now and then a foolish fellow who thinks he can be witty upon them may bring them again into notice they will sometimes start up a college joker who does not consider that what is a joke in a college will not do in the world to such defenders of religion i would apply a stanza of a poem which i remember to have seen in some old collection henceforth be quiet and agree each kiss his empty brother religion scorns a foe like thee but dreads a friend like t'other the point is well though the expression is not correct one and not thee should be opposed to t'other Footnote. I have inserted the stanza as Johnson repeated it from memory, but I have since found the poem itself in The Foundling Hospital for Wit, printed at London, 1749. It is as follows. Epigram occasioned by a religious dispute at Bath. On reason, faith, and mystery high, two wits harangue the table, B. Y. believes, he knows not why, N. swears, tis all a fable. Peace, coxcombs, peach and both agree. N. kiss thy empty brother, religion laughs at foes like thee, and dreads a friend like t'other. Boswell. The disputants are supposed to have been Beau Nash and Bentley, the son of the doctor, and the friend of Walpole, Croker. John Wesley, in his journal, tells how he once silences Nash. End of footnote. On the Roman Catholic religion, he said, If you join the Papists externally, they will not interrogate you strictly as to your belief in their tenets. No reasoning Papist believes every article of their faith, there is one side on which a good man might be persuaded to embrace it. A good man of a timorous disposition, in great doubt of his acceptance with God, and pretty credulous, might be glad to be of a church where there are so many helps to get to heaven. I would be a papist if I could. I have fear enough, but an obstinate rationality prevents me. I shall never be a papist unless on the near approach of death, of which I have a very great terror. I wonder that women are not all papists. Boswell. They are not more afraid of death than men are. Johnson. Because they are less wicked. Dr. Adams. They are more pious. Johnson. 
no hang em they are not more pious a wicked fellow is the most pious when he takes to it he'll beat you all at piety he argued in defence of some of the peculiar tenets of the church of rome as to the giving the bread only to the laity he said they may think that in what is merely ritual deviations from the primitive mode may be admitted on the ground of convenience and i think they are as well warranted to make this alteration as we are to substitute sprinkling in the room of the ancient baptism as to the invocation of saints he said though i do not think it authorized it appears to me that the communion of saints in the creed means the communion with the saints in heaven as connected with the holy catholic church footnote waller in his divine poesy canto first has the same thought finely expressed the church triumphant and the church below in songs of praise their present union show their joys are full our expectation long in life we differ but we join in song angels and we assisted by this art may sing together though we dwell apart possible End of footnote. he admitted the influence of evil spirits upon our minds and said nobody who believes the new testament can deny it i brought the volume of dr hurd the bishop of worcester's sermons and read to the company some passages from one of them upon this text resist the devil and he will fly from you james chapter four verse seven i was happy to produce so judicious and elegant a supporter of a doctrine which i know not why should in this world of imperfect knowledge and therefore of wonder and mystery in a thousand instances be contested by some with an unthinking assurance and flippancy Footnote. the sermon thus opens that there are angels and spirits good and bad that at the head of these last there is one more considerable and malignant than the rest who in the form or under the name of a serpent was deeply concerned in the fall of man and whose head as the prophetic language is the son of man was one day to bruise that this evil spirit though that prophecy be in part completed has not yet received his death's wound but is still permitted for ends unsearchable to us and in ways which we cannot particularly explain to have a certain degree of power in this world hostile to its virtue and happiness and sometimes exerted with too much success all this is so clear from scripture that no believer unless he be first of all spoiled by philosophy and vain deceit can possibly entertain a doubt of it having treated of possession his lordship says as i have no authority to affirm that there are now any such so neither may i presume to say with confidence that there are not any but then with regard to the influence of evil spirits at this day upon the souls of men i shall take leave to be a great deal more peremptory then having stated the various proofs he adds all this i say is so manifest to every one who reads the scriptures 
that if we respect their authority the question concerning the reality of the demoniac influence upon the minds of men is clearly determined let it be remembered that these are not the words of an antiquated or obscure enthusiast but of a learned and polite prelate now alive and was spoken not to a vulgar congregation but to the honourable society of lincoln's inn his lordship in this sermon explains the words deliver us from evil in the lord's prayer as signifying a request to be protected from the evil one that is the devil this is well illustrated in a short but excellent commentary by my late worthy friend the rev dr lord of whom it may truly be said multisilebonus flebilis occidit it is remarkable that waller in his reflections on the several petitions in that sacred form of devotion has understood this in the same sense guard us from all temptations of the foe boswell dr lord is often mentioned in horace walpole's letters multisiliquidim plebilis occidit comes from horace odes book one number twenty four line nine translated by francis how did the good the virtuous mourn End of footnote. after dinner when one of us talked of there being a great enmity between whig and tory johnson well, not so much i think unless when they come into competition with each other there is none when they are only common acquaintance none when they are of different sexes a tory will marry into a whig family and a whig into a tory family without any reluctance but indeed in a matter of much more concern than political tenets and that is religion men and women do not concern themselves much about difference of opinion and ladies set no value on the moral character of men who pay their addresses to them the greatest profligate will be as well received as the man of the greatest virtue and this by a very good woman by a woman who says her prayers three times a day our ladies endeavoured to defend their sex from this charge but he roared them down no no a lady will take jonathan wild as readily as st austin if he has drippings more and what is worse her parents will give her to him women have a perpetual envy of our vices they are less vicious than we not from choice but because we restrict them they are the slaves of order and fashion their virtue is of more consequence to us than our own so far as concerns this world miss adams mentioned a gentleman of licentious character and said suppose i had a mind to marry that gentleman would my parents consent johnson yes they'd consent and you'd go you'd go though they did not consent miss adams perhaps their opposing might make me go johnson oh very well you'd take one whom you think a bad man to have the pleasure of vexing your parents you put me in mind of dr barraby the physician who was very fond of swine's flesh one day when he was eating it he said i wish i was a jew why so said somebody the jews are not allowed to eat your favourite meat because said he i should then have the gust of eating it with the pleasure of sinning johnson then proceeded in his 
declamation. Miss Adams soon afterwards made an observation that I do not recollect, which pleased him much. He said with a good-humoured smile, that there should be so much excellence united with so much depravity is strange. Indeed, this lady's good qualities, merit and accomplishments, and her constant attention to Dr. Johnson were not lost upon him. She happened to tell him that a little coffee-pot in which she had made his coffee was the only thing she could call her own. He turned to her with a complacent gallantry. Don't say so, my dear. I hope you don't reckon my heart as nothing. End of section 33